We're in Mark 6 uh, once again, and we uh, have come as far as verse 7. And it says, He had called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, In whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So Jesus has been modeling for the apostles this itinerant preaching ministry. After he was rejected at Nazareth, he began making a circuit of the villages, teaching and preaching. And so now he's ready to put them into action. We don't know how they felt about this task. You know, none of them refused. I know I'm just not going to do it. They came to be his disciples, and a disciple obeys and follows his master. No one decided to give up being an apostle. You know, this is just too tough, Jesus. No letters of resignation were delivered. Some of them may have been uncomfortable with this command. It was easy to be with Jesus while he preached the kingdom and did amazing things. They liked being in the background, maybe some of them, and doing the things needed to support Jesus' ministry. But now he wants to send them out to do the things that he's been doing. And he won't be there in person to turn to when there are issues, problems, or questions. They will have to learn to labor for the kingdom of God apart from his physical presence. Some training going on. They have to do the work of the ministry while Jesus is somewhere else. And now he does make provision for them to be able to do that, which he commands just as he does for us today. He gives them power to cast out demons, to preach repentance, and to heal. He has sent His Holy Spirit into our hearts so that we might always have His presence and His strength and ability to do whatever He commands us to do. If you follow Jesus, it is likely that at some time He will lead you to do something that you are not really comfortable with, a situation in which you feel inadequate or awkward. But as you obey, you will find that He is there with you, giving you all that you need to carry out His command. So we must step out in faith to obey those commands when we're uncomfortable. You may have experiences where you begin to sink, as Peter did when he stepped out of the boat onto the water. If you cry out, the Lord will help you. And we see examples of this type of person in the Scriptures, um, like Moses. Moses originally was convinced that God was going to deliver the Israelites through him. And you recall he slayed that Egyptian who was uh, beating a Hebrew. And the next day he breaks up a fight among the Hebrews. And the guy says, you're going to kill me too? You know. And uh, Moses realizes this has been known and he takes off. You know, goes to the wilderness. He's out there 40 years taking care of sheep. And then the Lord appears to him in the burning bush and says, Hey, Moses, I want you to go and get my people out of Egypt. And Moses is like, 
who am I that I should do this? And the Lord gives him signs and he really is working with him to do all these things, you know. And Moses said, I can't talk. You know, I can't talk. I'm not eloquent. And the Lord says, who made man's mouth? Let me think about it. I know the answer. <laughs> and so he encourages him in this way. And then he gets through all this and Moses says, why don't you just send somebody else? Couldn't you just send somebody else? And that makes the Lord angry, of course, you know. So, you know, there's Moses, Jeremiah. He's a young guy, maybe in his teens, 17 years old or so, a lot of people think. The Lord appears to him and says, I'm going to send you to my people to talk to them. And he says, I can't talk. I'm just a youth. The Lord says, don't say you're a youth. I'm going to put my words in your mouth, etc. And the Lord tells Jeremiah, don't be afraid of their faces. Because faces are scary things, you know, a lot of times. <laughs> and then there's, you know, Timothy. Paul wrote to Timothy. Timothy was a young guy, and he may have been timid. Timothy. Um, Paul writes to him and says, God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of love, power, and a sound mind. And he, he tells him, you know, correct those who are wrong and all these, these different things. Well, God's solution is always the same with these people. He says, I'll be with you. I'm going to carry out what I, if what I command you to do. I will give you the ability to do. I will strengthen you. I will guide you. Some of the apostles, however, they might have been completely different. They've been, they may have been quite excited about going out into independent ministry. At last, I get to do something to take on the world and the ministry. I mean, Paul was, was very bold, you know, and, and driven in many ways. Now, Peter was always ready to, to jump out there and at least say something. James and John, the sons of thunder, Boanerges, you know, they, Lord, you want us to call fire down out of heaven and burn these guys up? Judas. We don't know much about Judas. What was his thoughts about this? What was his attitude? These may have been ready to go before Jesus finished speaking. Okay, here's my staff. I'm out of here. Oh, wait. Jesus is still talking. <laughs> there are differences among people, and this would have been the case among the apostles also. Everyone would have had lessons to learn from this experience. Their faith would have been exercised by the circumstances they encountered. They would learn to rely on themselves less and upon the Spirit more, whatever their personality might be. Life in Jesus is meant to be an adventure. Some of us are more adventurous than others. But you never know what's going to happen with the Lord if you just listen and obey and follow Him. Exciting things can happen. So Jesus sends them out two by two. Mark's the only one that tells us this part of it. Uh, but it's wise in going that there be two or more for support and prayer. It may not always be possible, but it's good if it can be arranged. Often when two Christians go together or simply encounter someone to witness to them, it's beneficial for one to be praying while the other is sharing the gospel. Uh, you may have a team where one person is normally in the lead and the other one is praying and supporting, or you might tag team. From this first excursion by the apostles, Jesus desires them to have companionship and support on the journey and in the ministry. And as I thought about this, I was wondering, who was paired with Judas? What was that like? You know, that poor apostle. 
But maybe Judas was totally different at this point in time. I don't think he believed. But he may have been waiting to see what could happen. Did he experience these things the other apostles experienced? Did he cast out demons? Preach repentance and power? And pray for people and they were healed? Did he have these experiences? Jesus gives them power or authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, the power to heal. And presumably this would include Judas. How was he not impacted in the same way as the other apostles? Is it possible that he did not have the same experience as the others since he did not truly believe? We just don't know. If he did experience the same things as the others, if he had these experiences... How much worse does that render his betrayal of Jesus? So he commands them not to take anything with them. He's sending them to Israel where people should have been believers, not into hostile territories. And no doubt they did encounter some devout believing people. He sent them to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, according to Matthew's account. This is the same way in which Jesus has been going. Jesus expects there to be a positive response among the people of God, a willing support for the missionaries that he's sending out. Later, when Jesus sends out 70 other disciples, he explains to them in Luke chapter 10 and verse 7, he tells them, remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. So you come to some place, hospitality is offered, and he says, if you enter a house, just stay there. You know, if they're offering more amenities down the block, you know, don't move. Just stay where you are and, you know, eat what you're given, so forth. Uh, This is later quoted by Paul to Timothy. Uh, He tells him in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word. And doctrine for the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So Paul, you know, quoting the gospel of Luke and Luke was companion of Paul and a recipient of Paul's uh, revelation of Jesus. So since Jesus is sending them to God's people, he does not expect them to need extra provisions. Their needs will be met by the hospitality of their hosts. Hospitality was emphasized among God's people. It's emphasized today that, you know, if you're going to be an elder, you should be given to hospitality. But, of course, the apostles are also learning lessons of faith as they go forth preaching the kingdom. They will be totally dependent upon God's provision during this journey, whatever form it may take. Traveling light kept them dependent upon God, says someone. They had to trust the Lord for everything if they didn't take much with them. And if the preacher doesn't trust God, how can he tell others to trust him? Uh, Later in the garden before his betrayal, Jesus counsels them to take stuff with them, even swords, certainly for deterrence and defense, not for waging war. But they'll be going into unbelieving and hostile territories then. But for this task, they're going to be traveling light. They would experience God's provision for them in a less challenging environment than would later be the case. So they're wearing sandals. They're not to even take extra cloak. 
And then when they were invited into a house, they were to stay there, to not depart from that place. And then he says, uh, if they don't receive you, shake the dust off your feet as you're leaving. Shaking dust. This was a common uh, sign of uh, disrespect. Yes, uh, Jews would do this when leaving Gentile regions or if they happened to somehow be in a Gentile house when they left, they would do that. You know, you don't want to carry any Gentile dust with you somewhere else. Uh, Jesus is saying this also applies to Jews <laughs> who reject his message. We find this with uh, Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13 and verse 50. They're ministering at Antioch and Pisidia. And in verse 50 it says, When the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, they raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they're just the Jews just drive them out from there. And it says, They shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So as Jesus was rejected at Nazareth, so might they be, and they probably were in some places. They certainly would be in some locales. In the same way, you may be rejected in your gospel witness. Move on. Keep on sharing with people about Jesus and the salvation he offers. It may be that the opportunity may once again open in the place where you were rejected. But don't let rejection slow you, slow you down in your mission. Now think about Samuel and the people of Israel. Samuel had been judging them for many years, and they decided they wanted a king. You remember the story, First Kings, or First Samuel, chapter eight. It says the all the elders of Israel in verse four, all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and said to him, "Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us, like all the nations." But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. And if you experience rejection in your mission, they're rejecting the Lord, not rejecting you. He said that I should not reign over them according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now, therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn, forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So it wasn't going to be a good experience. And they were warned ahead of time. This is what the king's going to do. Oh, we still want a king. You know. And the Lord was to be their king, of course. Uh, in John chapter 13 and verse 20, Jesus talking to the apostles says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. And then in John 15 to the same guys, he says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. It's sobering to think that there are places compared to which Sodom and Gomorrah will have a more tolerable judgment. These cities, God rained fire and brimstone out of the heavens upon them. Yet there is still a judgment coming on a future day. Henry Morris says, There is indeed a judgment day coming, and one important factor in the judgment will be response to light received. There are going to be different measures of judgment. 
some are going to, Sodom and Gomorrah is going to be judged more tolerantly than people that rejected the apostles here. Those who have the revelation and word of Jesus and reject it will have a more severe judgment than places like Sodom and Gomorrah. People who reject the Lord today and the gospel message. In Luke chapter 10, verse 13, Jesus speaks to the cities that he's been to. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. How does he know this? This is totally a hypothetical, right? God knows. He doesn't have to wait to see what people do before he knows because he knows how they would react in a situation that does not come about. And that's what he's saying here. They would have repented. He knows it. Sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. This is the headquarters of Jesus' ministry. And yet many of them rejected that ministry. You'll be brought down to Hades. He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. We read the opposite. He who receives me, receives him who sent me. He who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. But he who hears you, he says, hears me. And so they were going out. They're representing the Lord Jesus. It's a serious and eternally fatal error to reject Jesus, the only Savior for mankind. We want to receive him. We want to cling to him. Never let go. Like Jacob hanging on to the angel. So they go out. They obey the command of Jesus to go and preach that people should repent or in order that men might repent. Preaching is best done outside the walls of the church. The gospel message will indeed be proclaimed in the assembly as the word of God is expounded. But the church is not the best place to find people who need to believe the gospel for salvation. The apostles preach the message of the coming of the kingdom of God. Repent. The kingdom is, is at hand. This is the same message that Jesus was preaching. Matthew 4.17 From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that is uh, right after John is put in prison. In the uh, account in Matthew, Jesus begins to preach publicly and say, Repent. for the And that, of course, that was John's message. The message of the gospel is a message of repentance. If repentance has not been preached, then the gospel has not been preached. It may be implied. The word itself may not be spoken. But the message of repentance, that is, turning to the Lord, thus turning away from our sin, is the only message that the gospel brings. Repentance is inherent in the New Testament command to believe. If the action of repentance is not preached, then the gospel has not been fully preached. How essential is repentance? If we look at Luke 13, verses 1 through 5, it says, There were present at that season some who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. This is another picture we get of Pilate and what he was like. He turns Jesus over knowing that he has nothing to be condemned for to be crucified here. Now, we don't know the full context of this. It would be interesting to know more of the history here. 
But he takes these Galileans and he mingles their blood with their sacrifices. He wasn't happy with them. And Jesus answered, said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? And everybody's heads are, Absolutely. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And David Guzik says, repentance is simply turning around our way, turning from our own way, turning to God's way. The literal meaning is to change your mind or your way of thinking. But with a change of thinking comes a change of path. Similar, simply, this is what it means to return to the Lord. And we can never walk on God's way until we forsake our own way. The Lord's glorious restoration works in and through our repentance. Repentance has been a much neglected message, at least since the Jesus movement. Not everywhere, certainly, but in much of the Christian community in the U.S. In the 60s and beyond, there was an emphasis upon the love of God, probably as a reaction against what was perceived as a condemnatory preaching of the gospel and an emphasis by the hippies upon love. I was a hippie, and the hippies, it was all about love. and you know, We were flower children and so forth. But it was an illusory image. It was uh, powerless. There was no power to love. And... I became disillusioned with that movement because you know, we're, everybody was supposed to have this love and care for one another. And, you know, my friends were ripping off each other in drug deals or, or you know, uh, stealing someone's girlfriend or boyfriend and, and this kind of thing. So, it, you know, a lot of talk about love, but they weren't, we weren't able to do it. Well, during this period of time and and following, Jesus loves you was often the extent of the preaching of the gospel. He certainly does love you. He's demonstrated that by the cross. And God is love. And love is his motivation for making a way of salvation for mankind. God's love is the source of his amazing grace. But that statement, Jesus loves you alone, leaves a vital part of the message unsaid. It can be taken that, oh, well, Jesus loves me. That means he's okay with whatever I do. That's not the case. He loves us enough that he wants to redeem us, take us out of that pit. It became popular in some circles to not speak about sin or repentance. If sin is not discussed, what is there to repent of? Bad habits? I repent of chewing my fingernails. Uh, some did surveys to find out what non-churchgoers wanted, and then those things were given to them. You know, this is nothing more than uh, finding out what the flesh of man likes <laughs> and giving them what their flesh likes. More entertainment, less talk of sinfulness, less judgmentalism, certainly no talk of repentance. We were simply to love them in. We must indeed love those who don't know Jesus just as someone loved us and shared the gospel with us. There's no love without the gospel of truth. This non-gospel outreach has become the source of major cultural rot and is bringing swift destruction in its wake. In Acts 17 and verse 30, 
Paul speaking to the Athenians on Mars Hill and all the idols there, they had something for every god. And in case they missed somebody, they had the idol for the unknown god. And in verse 30, Paul, in the middle of his discourse, says, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. There are certainly still voices of hatred and condemnation in the preaching of the gospel rather than the message of reconciliation with God. Um, years ago, I haven't heard of this person since, but there was a preacher who would come to the USI campus and he would uh, rail at people. He would be calling them names and so forth. And uh, he was much despised, of course. <laughs> um, and that led to a free speech zone on campus. And so you could you could say what you wanted to in this little area, but you couldn't, you know, if you're doing it over here, then they could make you leave or something. And we know that those, those zones are very prevalent today in different places. Well, the fact remains that our reconciliation with the Holy God can only take place through repentance. A turning to God, which requires a turning away from sin. Just as physically it is impossible to turn towards something without turning away from something, so it is spiritually. I can't turn toward the window without turning away from you. Hey, this is nice. <laughs> this is not bad at all. And maybe, maybe we got a new... Okay. And God gives grace to the one who humbly comes to Him in repentance. We do not successfully turn from sin by our own strength or willpower, but by the enabling of God's Spirit as we turn to Him. And we're not talking about sinlessness, but that is the desire and the goal of all who have come to Jesus. You, you begin to hate those things that so easily entangle you. Someday that will be the reality. We will be sinless. No more. Completely delivered. Completely glorified. Made holy. Completely sanctified. And yes, there is Christian repentance. Because Christians have not yet been perfected. We read about this in Hebrews 12. In verse 1 it says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all those people talked about in Hebrews 11, and many others, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Repentance is the consistent message of the New Testament but also of the old. Repentance is the door to peace with God. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Repentance is an act of faith that opens the door to the grace of God and to peace with God. In verse 13, he says, They cast out these demons. They anointed people with oil and prayed for the sick and healed them. The twelve are sent, to, sent out to preach, anointing, anointing with oil when healing. 
this is the only place in the Gospels where it mentions anointing with oil for healing. Uh, in prayer, bringing that instant healing, there is in, in Luke 10, 34, the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan, we find this man, uh, well, tells us how he was, the uh, Samaritan responded to him. He said, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. Oil was generally used in uh, healing wounds, anointing wounds, and, you know, keep it moisturized and all. And then the wine, and antiseptic, uh, to, to help with that. But this is the only place in the Gospels where we find... Uh, this anointing with oil for healing. Of course, we read five, James 5.14 often when we're praying for people because it says there, if anyone's sick, let him call for the elders of the church. Let them anoint him with oil. Pray for the sick. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. So, uh, oil was used in that day as a medical treatment for wounds uh, in various situations. Uh, the Apostles also cast out demons as they were doing this. Later on, when Jesus sends out 70 other uh, disciples, uh, Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 20, it says, Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. This got them really excited, you know. Wow, demons. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. So, moving on then to verse 14, we come to uh, this account of the death of John the Baptist. Verse 14, it says, Now King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. And others said, It's Elijah. And others said, It's the prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard it, he said, This is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John, bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, it's not lawful for, lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. And then an opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers and the chief men of Galilee, and when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. He also swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And he, she said, The head of John the Baptist. And immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist, on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner, commanded his head to be brought, and he went and beheaded him in prison. He brought his head on a platter 
and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. So King Herod hears about Jesus, and he thinks, gosh, John the Baptist is, is back. You know, Herod has a guilty conscience. Herod was not actually a king. He was a tetrarch. He was ruling a fourth, fourth part of a territory, but he preferred to be called king. And so the common usage was King Herod, but uh, Rome did not recognize him as a king. Herod welcomed, or Herod becomes aware of Jesus' activities, and Jesus has become well known. Everyone's talking about him. Herod is obviously not a Bible scholar. He seems to have a concept that combines resurrection with reincarnation or some idea here. Has John returned as someone else? His thinking is not rational, reasonable. Uh, Herod believes resurrection is possible, and this explains why Jesus slash John has supernatural powers. That, yeah, he's been raised from the dead, so now he's able to do all this stuff. I think there's a bit of a guilt complex and some of a, something of a horror story in Herod's thinking. Why has John come back? He's coming to get me. So he was saying, John the Baptist, there are others who were saying, uh, well, he's Elijah, one of the prophets, uh, the prophet. Uh, these are the same ideas that were circulating among the people when Jesus asked the apostles <coughs> who men said that he was. Matthew 16, verses 13 and 14. It says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter speaks up and says, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the most important question that any person can ever answer and must answer is who is Jesus? What's the difference between eternal life and eternal death? The answer to that question. So some say uh, John the Baptist, uh, as Herod did, strange. John did no miracles. He baptized at the Jordan and he did not travel far from that region. Uh, the similarities between John and Jesus are nearly absent. They were both called by God to do ministry. But John was rightly considered by many to be a prophet, and he was probably thought of to be worthy of resurrection, but there's no indication that he had been raised. Jesus' public ministry increased dramatically at the death of John, but both of them were alive at the same time. It doesn't fit resurrection or the false belief of reincarnation, which was not a Jewish doctrine to begin with. Some thought he was the prophet. This is a reference to the promise of Moses in Deuteronomy 18. They were looking for some prophet to arise, and, and they were confused about this. They thought maybe the Messiah was different from the prophet, was different from Elijah's coming, which it certainly would be. Deuteronomy 18.15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst and your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is Moses speaking. According to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see his great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. 
And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. The prophet is none other than the Messiah or Jesus. He's, he's going to put his words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. This is only true of the Messiah. And he's going to require it of them. Um, some thought he was Elijah come back or come before the coming of the Lord because there was this prophecy Right, that uh, he would send Elijah. It's Malachi 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you, Malachi 4, 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Well, that's the second coming, the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Well, we know that uh, John the Baptist, when they asked him who he was, he quoted Isaiah 40 and verse 3. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And so uh, they saw this John the Baptist as possibly Elijah the forerunner. Uh, Matthew chapter 17, uh, we find the Mount of Transfiguration. Who's there with Jesus? Moses and Elijah, and it's not John the Baptist. It's Moses and Elijah are there. And uh, they ask him, his disciples ask him at the end of this, it's like um, Luke 17.10. Did I say Luke? Matthew. Matthew 17.10. His disciples ask him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things, future tense. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So, a lot of people say, well, see, Jesus said he was Elijah. Right? But we find the definitive answer in Luke chapter 1, verses 13 through 17, when the angel is speaking to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. It says to him in verse 13, Your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. That's in, uh, unique. In, in, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah, but he was not Elijah. Come back. Elijah will precede the coming of the Lord at the second coming. Now, some thought he was Jeremiah or one of the prophets. It had long it had been a long time since there had been a prophet among the people of Israel. 400 years. Maybe the people thought it could only be possible if one of the old prophets returned. Uh, some may have associated Jesus with Jeremiah since Jeremiah warned so often of judgment as did Jesus. Jesus talked more about hell, Gehenna, than he did about heaven. 
As Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet, so Jesus was sorrowful over Israel, knowing the judgment that would come as a result of their rejection of him. So Herod, Herod's freaking out. He hears about Jesus. He's very superstitious. He's very afraid. It didn't matter what other people said about Jesus. Herod knew this was John coming back for him. Uh, you may have heard the old story. This is when I was a teenager or something. Uh, told around a campfire, you know, the man with a golden arm. Remember that? I want my golden arm. You know. So Herod... Uh, Sorry, John the Baptist is coming to hear. I want my head. I want my head. So then we get this flashback. It's the backstory on on what's going on here, and this is why Herod's so freaked out by what he's heard about Jesus. So in verse uh, 17, then uh, we find Herod had arrested John, put him in prison because he spoke against his marriage to Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. And he spoke also against the things which Herod had done, the evil things, likely official acts. Uh, we find this in Luke 3.19. It says, Herod the Tetrarch being rebuked by him, John, concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and all the evils which Herod had done. There's probably a lot there. So Herod had married his brother Philip's wife. This was a violation of the law of God. Uh, Leviticus 18.16 you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. And Leviticus 20:21, 20, Herod was in an adulterous relationship. We don't know when John was able to speak to Herod and tell him about all these things or when he had an audience with him. But Herod is clearly under conviction but not willing to repent. And this is the message to Herod. Herodias, however, hates John for his criticism of her relationship with Herod and desires to kill John. Uh, the Herods were an interesting group, interesting a lot. There was Herod the Great, who was king at Jesus' birth and sent to slaughter the uh, innocents in Bethlehem. He also had a number of his sons executed because he was afraid they would overthrow him and take his, his rulership. But he had other sons, and... All these sons were named Herod, but they had sub-names, you know. It was like George Foreman, you know, naming all his sons George. I mean, you know, there's some efficiency there because if you want your sons to all come, you just yell, hey, George, come here, you know. So, um, so it's hard to keep the Herod straight sometimes. You, you almost need a scorecard, you know, as you're going through. But uh, Herod, this Herod is Antipas. He was the son of Herod the Great, uh, that was Herod's own name for himself, Herod the Great. <laughs> he was short. And the Herods were Iodemians. Yeah, they were from Edom. <laughs> Iodemians. Uh, and they were conquered in the past by Israel and forced to observe the law of Moses. They were subjected under Israel. And so they became uh, half-Jews kind of by, by force. And so they... You know, Herod would keep the law of Moses. He wouldn't eat pork and things like that. But they were really a messed up family. And Herodias was a very twisted woman. She's part of the family. <laughs> Another son of Herod the Great was Aristobulus, the father of Herodias. 
Herodias had married still another of Herod's sons named Philip. This was not Philip the Tetrarch. This was a, a Philip who was a private citizen. And then Herodias later left Philip to marry Herod Antipas because she wanted to be a queen and he was, had the, he was taking the title of king. And both Philip and Herod Antipas were thus her uncles. So she married one uncle, left him to be with the other uncle. And then her daughter, Herodias' daughter, was named Salome, according to Josephus, the historian. And she was the daughter of Philip and Herodias. So got all that straight. <laughs> so Herod apprehends John, but he's unwilling to execute him. Herod knows John has done nothing worthy of death nor imprisonment in reality. And he considers John to be holy and just as he is in reality. He protects John, it says. Herodias is the only one John needs protection from, other than Herod himself, who is a lethal danger to John because he is controlled to a degree by Herodias, a great degree, and by popular opinion. How does Herod protect John? He puts John in protective custody. He protected him from Herodias, but not from Herod's own sin, as it turned out. I'm going to protect you from my wife uh, and myself. By locking you away in prison. Your offense, what was his offense? Hate speech. How often protective custody looks like jail. Can you say lockdowns? In any case, Herod calls for John frequently and listens to him. It says he did many things when he heard him. I think that's mysterious as to what these things were. He did many things when he heard him, but they do not amount to repentance. These were probably half measures on the part of Herod. Maybe seeking to reform, clean up this area, that area, but not really uh, surrendering himself to God. But Herod liked listening to John. I had a friend at a previous job, and he loved to talk about Bible prophecy. He wasn't a believer, and so... We'd be stuck on a job together for hours at a time, you know, and for days sometimes. And so we'd be talking about Bible prophecy and past prophecies, future prophecy, what's happening today that's going on. And he was just fascinated with, with the prophecy. And he could see that a lot of the things the Bible said would happen, that said would happen, had happened, and that there were things happening in our day that were prophesied in the Bible. But he never wanted to surrender to Jesus. I haven't had contact with him since, so I don't know, you know what his state was after that. But he liked listening to John, and, and this will mess with your head when there's someone you know well. Herod heard him often and liked him, but he has commanded that his head be chopped off and brought into his birthday party on a platter. A special dish is served, served up for my birthday. It is no doubt cold, or cooling at least. Vengeance is a dish they say that is best served cold. I don't know why. Well, Herod was like those today who go to church to hear the word preached or taught, but who never respond to what the word says to do. They never believe the gospel in a life-transforming sense, and they never submit themselves to God. They get inoculated, but they never get the infection, so to speak. James chapter 1 tells us that we should not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word, not to deceive ourselves. Are you 
If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Just forget the word if you're not putting it into practice. Some criticize John here. They say it was his own fault that he ended up in prison and was beheaded because he should have stayed out of politics. They don't believe Christians should have any involvement in the political arena. But God's Word applies in the political world as in any other area of life. If a person has the opportunity to speak the gospel truth with a political leader, then they should do so as led by the Spirit. We should stand boldly for the Lord in the public square as we would in any other place. We have the right in our nation and thus the responsibility, I think, to be involved in our government in the formulation of our laws and policies. The extent of our involvement might be different for different ones of us, depending on how God leads us and what He's called us to. We won't all be uh, in the same uh, intensity or the same, same way. If our government calls good evil and evil good, then we must stand against those evil things that are being promoted or celebrated as acceptable or even good. Some politicians love to use the excuse that you can't legislate morality. I heard that all the time growing up. Yet nearly all laws, if not all, have an element of morality or immorality. If they mean you can't make people obey the law, then that's correct. But if you can't legislate morality, then laws against murder, theft, perjury, arson, etc. should be done away with. What will Jesus do in the millennial kingdom? Will he legislate morality? Rule with a rod of iron? And we've long ago done away with laws that were intended to govern sexual morality. And the result has been a massive deterioration of public sexual morals and a moral rot. And of course, I must say that we do not look to a purely political solution to our nation's problems. There is not one, especially at this time. Laws passed by one party are unpassed by another. I know it's not the right way to say it, unpassed, you know, but that's what happens. Political actions can only slow the rot at best, but that's something. Slow rot's better than complete and full rapid rot. The only true solution to our nation's woes is the gospel of Christ Jesus, a change of hearts and not of laws. A return to the worldview that once was mostly held even by political opponents. I don't see this as likely. It's not impossible. The Lord could send us another revival. But we do know eventually in the last days all nations will be aligned against Israel. And that will include America at some point if it still exists. It'll either decline or collapse or become part of the new world order. But we're to stand for what is right and true always, even if the mountains are removed and cast into the midst of the sea. This world is not our home, our hope, or our future. That perspective must be at the forefront of everything we do. It must be the focus of our lives and our interactions with this world. Our nation is not our salvation. Jesus is our Savior. And we must continue to serve Him regardless of the state or non-state of the nation. We've been blessed to be citizens of this nation. But we have an infinitely higher citizenship that we must not lose sight of 
And we must love those who are our enemies in public or in private. That includes speaking the truth and the love of God. This we are to do with one another and also with those on the outside. Uh, Those within Ephesians 4, uh, verses 11 through 16, speaking of this growth of the church, the way the church would would grow together, says, uh, He, Jesus, Himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love to one another, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. From whom every, or from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So we're to speak the truth in love to one another. Second Timothy chapter two and verse twenty-three. We see this in relation to those who are outside. It says, avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. It's 2 Timothy 2.23. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Well, there's a fine balance to be maintained here between involvement in this world and our focus upon the gospel in the next world. Well, John's position in relation to Herod was unique in comparison to our position today. Herod was a ruler of the Jewish people, and the law of Moses was to govern those rulers. And so as the Old Testament prophets confronted kings and often suffered violent consequences as a result, John was suffering in the same way. John Trapp, he's an old um, commentator, Puritan. John Trapp tells of another bold confrontation of sin in a king. This is with Latimer. You recall Hugh Latimer? Remember him? Ended up being burned at the stake for his witness. Well, John Trapp recounts this. Latimer presented for a New Year's gift to King Henry VIII a New Testament with a napkin having this posy about it. Posy is like a little verse or you know, comment. This is the posy. Whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Why would King Henry take that personally? There's a saying that if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that yelps is the one that was hit. <laughs> I'm not recommending throwing any rocks, by the way. So Herod heard John gladly, but he did not commit himself to John. He was not a friend to John. Never mistake someone being friendly toward you with being your friend. Uh, We see this with Jesus. They were friendly toward him. They came to him to trap him, however. Oh, oh, Master, we know that you're good and you always do the things that are right and good and everything. And what do you think about this? They were very friendly, but they were not friends. And so this... 
Matthew 10.16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Uh, That's the wise as serpents, gentle as doves category. So we're told that one day an opportune time came, an opportune day. This was not an opportune day for John, but it was an opportune day for Herodias and for the devil. The devil, the enemy, is always looking for an opportune time to bring destruction in our lives. Uh, John 10.10, Jesus said, The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. In Luke 4, verse 13, after the devil had tempted Jesus and presenting him with temptations for 40 days, it says, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The devil's always out there waiting, looking for a better opportunity. Uh, he was with Jesus. He will be with us as well. So this opportune time comes on Herod's birthday. It's a big birthday feast. Many important people attending. It's a big state occasion. Nobles, high officers, chief men. Herod ruled the region of Galilee, and these were people from that region, powerful leaders. So uh, Herodias' daughter is brought in to dance, and this this would be pretty unusual for a daughter of a an official to be dancing because these were usually rather risque, uh, lewd type dances that were done at these feasts. And everybody's been drinking, you know, you probably probably have a lot of drunken people here. The Greek scholar A.T. Robertson says, such dancing was an almost unprecedented thing for women of rank or even respectability. It was mimetic and licentious and performed by professionals. Normally it would be professional dancers, you know, coming in. So Herodias' dance was provocative and performed among a group of likely drunk, lustful men. And then we have Herod's rash promise. He may have been imbibing a bit too much. What a foolish statement, even up to half my kingdom. He had no kingdom that did not belong to Rome. I can't imagine (laughs) him telling them, oh, I gave half this area to be ruled by my, uh, my stepdaughter. If she had said, okay, half the kingdom, I think he would have been in a really tough position. You know, he would have been very embarrassed. So we know Herod has some major issues. Uh, Later, after Jesus' arrest, he wants to see Jesus so he can ask him to do some miracle. He wants to see him do something like that. And then he and his companions mock Jesus and send him back to Pilate. I still remember a line from the musical uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, which was had before I was a believer, you know, this opera, rock opera that was, I don't know, three albums or something. And I still remember the part about Herod wanting to see a miracle from Jesus. And, and the Herod statement was, prove to me that you're no fool. Walk across my swimming pool. You know, it had to rhyme for the song. So... The girl asked her mother, you know, he says, what do you want? I'll give whatever you want. I'll give it to you. And she's going to ask her mother, probably like, Mom, should I get a necklace or a diamond ring? Or what what do you think I should ask for? Uh, Robertson again says, the girl's question implies by the middle voice that she's thinking of something for herself. She was no doubt unprepared for her mother's ghastly reply. And what a mother. 
What what kind of person was Herodias? What a way to raise a daughter. Send her out and do this dance. And, you know, this was probably a setup by Herodias, thinking this was her opportune time. This was the woman who Herod married in violation of the law of Moses. And we think of Philip and we think, what a fortunate man. <laughs> Herod's in a tight spot. Now I'm thinking about this. How do you get around this? Give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So I'm Herod. I'm trying to figure out how I can do this without you know, cutting his head off. He could have delivered the head still attached to the body. John would have had to stand on the platter. Okay, here's his head, but you get the rest of him too. Okay, maybe not. Maybe that wouldn't go over. Pardon? Really big platter, yeah. So uh, this is pretty gross and disgusting. I mean, you're having this big feast, birthday feast, everybody's celebrating, and you offer this thing, and, and uh, you know, it says, bring in the head of John the Baptist on a platter. That put a downer in the party, you know. Maybe some people get really excited about it, but most people, I think, would not. <laughs> be like, oh, I think we're going to leave now. We're going to take our departure. So, a really gross, disgusting, ghastly thing that's being requested here. tells us Herod was exceedingly sorry, but because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. This exceedingly sorry is the same word used to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. His soul was exceedingly sorrowful. Uh, Herod was exceedingly sorry, but not sorry enough to refuse such a base request. It was more important for Herod to save face among the ruling classes who were celebrating his birthday and not to anger his wife. What a gal. You can kind of understand I wanted to anger his wife. But a place of power or authority over, over others as Herod was in is an extremely dangerous place to be. We must all answer to the Lord, but how much more so when we have power over others? We will answer for how we use any such power or authority. So John is executed on a whim. No trial. No punishable offense according to law. So we're talking about legalized murder here. The practice of many unaccountable governments. Many of our brothers and sisters are being um, legally terminated around the world. Even this morning, there are those who are being killed for their faith. And so then John the Baptist's um, disciples come and they know about the execution. They take his body. I don't know what happened to his head. I don't know if they gave him the head along with the body or not. Someday they'll be united, reunited, you know, in the resurrection. So John the Baptist has finished his course here. It's a moment of pain, if he felt anything at all, and eternal glory to follow. Herod is not so fortunate. It's possible that he could repent, but history doesn't tell us that. A moment of weakness, well, many moments of weakness, and a torturous future to follow. History tells us that in order to take his brother's wife, Herodias, Herod put away his first wife, and she was a princess from a neighboring kingdom to the east. This princess's father was offended and came against Herod with an army and defeated him in battle. 
And then his brother Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, he's the one that Paul stands before in Acts 26, and yet another son of Herod the Great. His brother Agrippa accused him of treason against Rome, and he was banished into the distant Roman province of Gaul. That's over in the French area somewhere. And so Herod and Herodias are banished to Gaul where they commit suicide. I can't really picture Herodias as being the type to commit suicide. Herod possibly, you know. So maybe it's one of those things look like <laughs> suicide. Uh, yeah. So that's their end. We have starts with the 12 apostles going out and beginning public ministry under Jesus' supervision and we have the end of John the Baptist as he is removed from the scene.